millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome again to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Our political system has many strengths and more than a few weaknesses. It is stable and broadly supported, leading to free and fair elections and to outcomes from those elections that we essentially agree are legitimate. Yet our confidence is waning, and for good reason. Like a fridge with something dodgy hiding on the back shelf, the whole thing is developing an unpleasant odour. In the last couple of years, we've seen outrageous rorting of community grants for electoral gain, a federal minister in charge of standards and legal propriety receiving who knows how much from undeclared donors, and anti-corruption probes into the governing parties of the two biggest states, amid evidence of chronic branch stacking and yet more dodgy political grant decisions. And under all of this, we continue to see money buying influence in our politics. I'm talking this week to Craig Rucastle, formerly of The Chaser, Fight for Planet A, and of course, The War on Waste. But now he's made a foray into directing with the new two-part doco called Big Deal, which shines a none-too-flattering light on our political donations laws. Craig Rucastle, welcome to Democracy Sausage, if that's not too confronting a concept. No, good to be here. And Mark, and apologies because, of course, we did steal the name Democracy Sausage for another podcast at one point, and I really <laughs> apologise for that. It's good to be on the, on the original and best. <laughs> Look, no, I think you're being uh, far too generous because I think actually what happened was it was a as a case of spontaneous invention. I don't think you <laughs> stole it. I think because it, it almost happened in the same week. We're going back to um, 2019, really, during the election campaign. The election, yes. In that in that uh, year, uh, so we're sort of April of 2019, I think, and uh, we we got this podcast up and running out of ANU, and I think in the same week. 
albeit we might have pipped you by a couple of days, but I don't think you can be accused of uh, of any of sort theft. of copyright uh, theft there. No, it's utterly untrue, Mark. I actually hide in the bushes near your house and uh, seeking good <laughs> ideas. Uh, you just didn't realise. <laughs> well, that explains uh, that explains a number of things. Now, look, <laughs> let's let's get to uh, let's get to this this problem of um, political donations and uh, and and generally the the problem of money, I suppose, in our politics. Hmm. Uh, how how bad do you think the problem is? I know that's a fairly general question, but I mean, the premise of this really is that there is a problem here. What is the problem? Yeah, look, I do think it's it's bad. I think that you're right when you say we have a lot of really good institutions in Australia, you know, independent electoral commissions, compulsory vote and that kind of stuff. But I think when it comes to this kind of donation side of it, at the federal level, we don't have a good set of rules. We have no caps on donations. We have no caps on spending as well. We have a disclosure regime which, uh, you know, realistically was modelled on Swiss cheese. So it's not an ideal system. And I think that if we want to really keep that kind of notion of one person, one vote at the core of democracy, we do have to be careful about how much we allow other voices, vested interests or otherwise, to have a much louder voice in the system. Yeah. Now you say um, so. You're not. You're not actually the the main face on this. You're not the face on this document. You're the director of it. So. No, no. It's great for people that hate my face. You can watch this documentary and, and, and not it's, be offended. It's great. I'm never on it. And the person who does that role is uh, Christian Van Vuren. Uh, tell us about him. Yeah, from the Bondi hipsters. So, you know, he's not quite as a, much of a political tragic as I am. So it's kind of, it's really a kind of seeing a normal person's response to finding out about how Canberra works, really, which yeah. at times is quite fascinating. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of parts of this doco that still shocked me, despite the fact that I've had got that interest in politics. But there were definitely, you know, a lot more that shocked Christian. Well, I think, and that's a really good point to make because I think that you, when you're close to the uh, the process, uh, much like I have been working in the press gallery for so long and being in Canberra for so long, it is possible to become, I guess, what you might say, encultured. Uh, that is to accept that certain things are natural and normal. Yes. That when uh, brought to light, when exposed more broadly, might uh, might seem to someone, the uninitiated, someone who's seeing it for the first time, as pretty outrageous. And I think political donations, broadly speaking, the role of money in politics, the role of lobbyists in politics, and all of these things are kind of interrelated. Uh, they, they they can be quite shocking, and uh, I know as someone who worked in Parliament House for so long that there are plenty of lobbyists, uh, you know, traipsing the, the the halls of power, seeking to represent various interests to government ministers and MPs and the like. And of course, that's perhaps the potential with uh, political donations as well. That's the the big concern. Uh, one of the people you have on there, Dr. Lindy Edwards, she tells uh, Christian that uh, our donation laws are actually mm. worse than America's. That's a that's a pretty pretty worrying revelation. Well, worse than America's in terms of transparency, I yeah. think. So not in every aspect of it, and they, they have quite a different system with the super PACs there, but in terms of donations to a politician and the limits on that and the transparency, um, we're probably worse than America. And in terms of actually a lot of the other stuff, I mean, uh, we show Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's kind of lightning round that shocked everyone in around America about donation laws there, and we apply that to Australia and go, actually, it's very little difference between the two. So. We're not as different from America in this particular area as you would think. And and I think you're totally right, though, about the fact that for those in Canberra, this 
documentaries, large parts of it won't be a massive shock. And talking to politicians, one of the interesting things about it was they're like, but yeah, that's just the system. That's it. You know, what, what's this documentary about? And the, the thing about this documentary is we're not exposing illegality. We're showing what is totally legal and normal. And I think there is a disconnect between what the average community member would probably think is corruption and what goes on without any, you know, corruption, without any kind of concern in Canberra. Because, of course, uh, politicians understand a, a, a basic truth, a basic reality, which is that it costs money to campaign. You can't campaign for nothing. You need resources. You need money for advertising, for, you know, for even the most basic things like, you know, those core flute sort of billboards around, but, but all kinds of things, printing costs and everything else, uh, advertising, as I say. So politicians understand that. They need money to do it. They do, but let's do a bit more of a deep dive onto that because that's generally the excuse that we have about this, that we need all this money for advertising. Now, currently, let's say going into the 2019 election, at the federal level, both of the major parties have got about $50 million in <clears throat> coming into them and about half of that was public money, about half was from donations. So you already have a large proportion there that is public funding. And so I guess the first question is, well, could you simply run your campaigns based on the public funding that you have? Now, there are members that do that. There are independent members that do that. So it's not it's not like it can't be done. So, yeah, independent. there are independent members that do do that. So it is possible to do it. Secondly, if you look in a country like the United Kingdom or Britain, you've got an instance there where they don't allow uh, – digital advertising. You're not allowed to put adverts on TV. So there immediately one of the biggest costs comes out. Like That was probably one of the parts that shocked me when Sam Dastiara is just laying down how much it costs to run an ad on you know commercial television in Sydney one night a week in the lead up to the election. You're going, oh my God, it's insane. Now, is that necessary to a democracy? I think you can definitely argue that it's not. Um, so yeah, having a system whereby, and, and I think what we saw from the Clive Palmer example of United Australia Party is that you go, okay, if you have no limits on this and you can have somebody who has $80 million to spend, does that totally distort the system? Does it mean that those people who are trying to run a, a grassroots democracy movement have no chance of competing uh, with that kind of money being spent? So, yes, yes, advertising and promoting is part of democracy, but does it have to be as much money as has been spent now? No, it doesn't. Some democracies, Ireland, Canada, and that bring in putting caps on spending. So does New South Wales. Uh, New South Wales state politics has that as well. So if you can cap spending, you then slightly uh, constrain this arms race. And even more outrageous, I mean, you know, we had the exact argument put to us that oh, bit we've got to run a campaign, we've got to have advertising. So we looked into that and you go, well, you the, the campaigns, the advertising you're running has no limits on what you can say. It doesn't have to be truthful at all. So you've got this ridiculous system where you're saying, we've got to raise all this money to put out the important messages, and then those messages can be entirely made up. I don't think that is a healthy democratic model. That's true. But what at the moment is the is the sort of the functional cap on the advertising? Going back to the example of uh, that Dastiara was talking to you about in terms of, uh, you know, putting uh, ads on television in the final week of an election campaign. At the moment, that, that there's a sort of a functional cap rather than a financial one. And that is there's only so many ads you can buy uh, and fit into those those major media outlets. So the arms race kind of comes to a 
to its to its natural saturation point uh i mean which is pretty high rotation sort of advertising well i mean we saw with palmer we saw we saw that ridiculous you know those yellow ads on television every night constantly ad break after ad break every so, billboard outside of every yeah. airport all over all over the cities i mean that was an absolutely um that was a saturation campaign, exactly, and it wasn't one which which had any particular purpose other than, as we can see from what happened, to suppress the Labor vote. Yes, well, I mean, his claim was he was going to win the seats, and then he changed his mind at the last moment, decided to polarise the nation so that Bill Shorten wouldn't win. But yeah, look, I, I don't think that that's particularly democratic that you can have one party that can put up that much advertising compared to others, and there are a lot of nations around the world that have brought in rules to try and stop that kind of thing. So the assumption that that's the natural way it goes is not true. And I think, to be honest, I think Palmer's intervention has shown the way the current system can be abused. I mean, not just with that. Like, you know, politicians set up the rules so they can't get in trouble, right? So normal company can't just get everyone's phone numbers and send them text messages. Politicians can. Out comes Craig Kelly and Clive Palmer, shows the kind of abuse of that system, and I hope that it means long-term we get some uh, changes to that system. Well, it might it might mean that in the longer term, but in the short term, it seems like Clive Palmer's gearing up to do it again. And as you say, he, you mentioned oh, Craig absolutely. Kelly. He's he's effectively incorporate he's incorporated Craig Kelly as a sitting MP into the United Australia Party uh, and made him his parliamentary representative, sort of ex post facto, mm. Kelly having been uh, uh, having been elected in the seat of Hughes as a Liberal, but uh, his kooky views are such that even the Liberal Party couldn't contain him any longer. Um, <laughs> and so we now have a situation where Palmer is, you know, sort of seeking the trappings of an established political party again, and uh, it's pretty clear they're going to be spending a vast amount of money to to affect the outcome of this election that we're, you know, let's say four or five months away from seeing. Yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing about that is that, and this again goes to show that political parties try to make the rules in their favour, in that there are advantages if you already have a political member as opposed to if you are trying to gain access for your first time, you don't have a member. So Clive Palmer getting Craig Kelly as a member gave him an advantage because otherwise he wouldn't have had those same rules applying. So, you know, look, the system, this is the problem at the moment. It's not a particularly balanced system. And it's hard because what we saw at the state levels, particularly in New South Wales, for instance, what we saw is that different times Liberal and Labor have both brought in reforms in this area. And on their own kind of there were some positives in both of those reforms. What would tend to happen is they would bring them in in a way that had those positives but also skewed it a lot their way. What we kind of need is both major parties to sit down and kind of you know, come to an agreement, uh, draw a kind of line in the middle so that it doesn't disadvantage either party or independents or people trying to gain access to the system, you know, because at the moment we've got a, a quite a distorted system. Yeah, now there's there's a sense, as you say, that sort of everyone's doing it and if you look at some of the things that could be done, uh, as you say, caps on donation, caps on the amount that, that can be spent. Liberals have a pretty standard response to that, and they say, fine, but understand this, the Labor Party, which, you know, proudly, depending on who you talk to, but mostly they'll, they'll sort of proudly say is the, is the party that was derived, it's the political arm of the trade union movement. The Labor Party relies on a lot of 
money that flows directly from affiliated unions into the coffers of the Labor Party, and there's also industry super funds you know, connected to uh, to the to the Labor movement as well. So that's a fair point by the Liberals, isn't it? So that on one side you've got corporate don- donations, on the other side you've got these these unions ploughing. Millions in, yeah, and and part of the reform would have to include unions in it. And I've, you know, I've spoken to labour members who say, look, if you if you get rid of corporate donations, obviously that will also affect union donations. I mean, there was an attempt in which got overruled in the unions new, unions New South Wales case to take the approach I think Canada has, where only people who are on the electoral roll can donate. So you have to be a person; you can't be a union or a business or such. Now that got overruled by the High Court based on, in part, kind of freedom of speech, political freedom of speech rules. But if you actually look at it, it's more because the rules were not well constructed. I I don't think that it said, I don't think that that High Court case means that we could never have proper rules that did actually take that approach if that was actually really what the, the Parliament meant to do. You know, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, no, unions would have to be affected as well. Now, there is, I guess, an argument with unions that you have a broad-based membership, so it's slightly more democratic in notion. So if you go, I've got one businessman who puts in a million dollars or I've got 1,000 members putting in a, th- you know, or 10,000 members putting in $100 each, that's a slightly more democratic notion behind it. But I guess you'd have to say, well, you know, have you received the, you know, have your members been asked, do they want to donate to that party in this way? And that might make it slightly more democratic than otherwise. But yes, unions would have to be affected by this as well. Yeah, now let, let's go to, to where the film kind of starts because it, it, it really starts with Christian talking about gun control and the, and the gun lobby and what, you know, I suppose he's sort of hinging off some, some previous work he's done in that. But the gun lobby is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, most Australians would be familiar with the National Rival Association in, in the US Charlton Heston's famous "From My Cold Dead Hand" speech about it. Uh, you know, we know where <laughs> where guns sit in the in the kind of American psyche. But gun money, if I can put it like that, uh, has uh, has been flowing into uh, Australian political campaigns for some time as well, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and it predominantly goes into minor parties. I mean, Catters, the Catter Party is the major party that gets gun money. There's things like the Shooters and Fishers Party and those kind of parties are also getting money. Uh, One Nation actually, despite the fact they were involved in that documentary previously about, you know, trying to get money out of the NRA, actually get uh, a smaller portion from those gun lobby. But again, it's interesting because I'm not as scared of that gun lobby creating the NRA situation right now because it doesn't really infiltrate our major parties and that's where most of the power is in Australia. It would require those parties to get kind of the balance of power to be able to leverage that position to actually get changes to those gun laws, which, you know, could obviously happen. I mean, Bob Catter could easily have a kind of crucial role in a vote and have a balance of power situation at one point. So that, that's, I guess, where that has an in, in, input that has an influence in our um, politics. Obviously, there's a slightly different Overton window in Australia with gun laws and America, and that most people in Australia are actually quite proud of the Howard gun laws. Whereas in America, obviously, the Overton window is, you know, from my cold dead hands, as he says. Well, and, and it's funny actually speaking of that because, as you say, Cata uh, could have balance of power, or some other miners could have balance of power and be be quite critical there, and that gun money could then find some sort of political expression way beyond its numerical representation in 
the community. But it, it's interesting because Cadder is in the news mm. today uh, and, and clearly the government, the, the coalition government, still regards him as a pivotal vote. He was actually complaining about, I think it was $19 million or so that's been spent in his far north Queensland electorate uh, from the, I think it's the um, Building Better Communities Regional Fund. Ah, oh, yes. And uh, he, I think he got something like $19 million which he admits is significantly based on the government trying to keep him sweet. So so we have sort of donations <laughs> that are made by private entities in murky circumstances with unknown uh, sort of outcomes for, for, for the broader community. And we also have governments using our money, taxpayer money, yes. uh, to effectively uh, to provide, pol- you know, to buy political favours within the system. Yeah, absolutely. And can I say that we, we we were kind of one of the parts of doing this movie was trying to maintain the focus because there are so many bits of scandal and kind of terrible political action happening while we were filming this that you were kind of like, oh, hang on a sec, we should, we also got to talk about these rorts of, you know, funding and yeah. sports rorts and that. And we go, no, no, let's just focus on this one issue. That is another separate issue, which, of course, um, <laughs> requires its own documentary. So it's it, – it is interesting that because I find the kind of sports short stuff more interesting from a political perspective, from a kind of democracy perspective, because, you know, there are people always run saying, I'm going to get you the best things for this electorate. I'm a good member because I get the bridges and the car parks and that kind of stuff. You know, that is at the core of how politicians present themselves to their electorates. So then where do we find that balance where we say, yes, but that's pushing it too far, you've pushed it too far? Now, as you said, there's a different level there, which is not people seeking to get things for their own electorate as good local members, but kind of paying off another electorate to try and get sweet with the member there who's an independent. Uh, but it's a, it's a really murky world, and it's one of the reasons I think, you know, getting a federal ICAC, a federal corruption commission is so important because, you know, there's clearly a, a lot of pushing of the rules there. Let's take a quick break there and back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking before about uh, about sort of the sports rorts and or touching on, on that issue. And uh, really, as you say, Craig, that kind of um, ill-defined line really between what is a, a local member sort of doing a muscular job of, you know, securing the best deal for her or his constituents 
and a system that is um, using taxpayer money for you know for political purposes, buying political favors and buying loyalty and and uh, promoting their own political party and and all those sorts of things. It, it is really quite a difficult thing to to codify, I suppose. I think back to someone like Brian Harradine, the famous um, uh, right wing senator from uh, from Tasmania, who secured all kinds of things during the Howard period because. He had a pivotal vote and he was often spoken about in quite glowing terms because of his singular focus of getting a better deal for Tasmania, even though that was in, in, in you know, quite disproportionate terms uh, to uh, the power that he would otherwise have in the parliament. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, we don't want to, I, I do feel like we're not quite at the American stage there where you kind of, you bill about, you know, I don't know, safety in hospitals also, you know, has, Two million dollars for corn in one particular electorate, or something like that. You know, what I mean, like you know, where do you draw the line in that? And I guess, I guess, what with sports rorts, where the outrage comes from, is that you have a criteria has been set up, and that has then been distorted. Yes, you can try and get the best for your electorate, but if you go outside the criteria and that just gets thrown aside, then I guess that's where the kind of distortion comes. It's interesting with the ICAC case, and obviously we've got to be cautious with 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 Gladys, but you know, it's it's not like you know, giving $5 million to the rural electorate to build a bloody, what is it, a, what was it, clay shooting? Clay target shooting, yeah. Clay target shooting, you know, venue is the actual outrage necessarily. That's kind of the norm there. I guess the question is whether or not there was declaration of the relationship there and I guess the question of whether or not there were kickbacks will also come up in it. But the core bit about, you know, I was a local member and I pushed my premier to get this great, Big clay shooting target venue. That's that's the kind of norm involved in it. Yeah, and I think the problem there. You're absolutely right. The problem there is really well. I think it's twofold. It's the question about what are the criteria and have the criteria been met? The objective criteria mm-hmm. for the apportioning of what is effectively a competitive bidding round for grants. And if in this case the the project didn't make it, right? So. You've got subsequent to the project not making it, the application from the Wagga Wagga Clay Target mm. Shooting uh, Club not making it, and then interference or uh, influence uh, used by uh, certain ministers. In this case, it was uh, Barry Chiklina's treasurer to uh, have that reviewed, and eventually the money flows there. But the second issue, and this is where I think th- some of the evidence that's come out is, uh, you know, raises so many eyebrows. Is, is the non-declaration of the link between, that is the relationship between the then treasurer, Berejiklian, and, um, and, and Daryl Maguire, the member for Wagga Wagga. And, and, and so mm. you have the obscuring of that relationship, which then stopped anyone from raising the question about conflict of interest. And that was the evidence that came up there. The, the, it, it's a similar case with the sports sports. Uh, it, it, yeah. it isn't uh, the non-disclosure of a relationship, but it is, the writing by the parliament uh, under, under under both legislation and reg- regulations of rules for the m- running of these schemes, running of this program, so that it actually benefits Australia, so that it's a prudent use of Australia's taxpayers' funds. And then you have political interference over and above that, mm. rejecting some decisions that have been approved in favour of some other projects that have not met the criteria uh, that is that is corruption in, in most people's it, it is and definition it, of it. And 
What's fascinating about that to me is the kind of, again, it's the really incredibly undemocratic nature of it. When you go, we're going to take this money and we just, and this is whether it happens for Labor or Liberal, and we're just going to direct it all towards our electorates. And if you're not in our electorates, you're not getting this. And I am just appalled by that. And, I th- and I'm particularly, to be honest, appalled in this case when you have examples of, you know, really poor salt of the earth kind of sports groups that have got the application, you know, they hit the criteria perfectly. They've put in all this time to do it. And then the money goes to Mossman Rowing Club. And no offence to the lovely people of Mossman, you're not who I consider the first people that need a hand up in this situation. Like that is just appalling. Oh, yeah, exactly. We need to fix that as well. That's and I'm just writing this down next doco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Um, because because this goes back really to where we started talking about the sort of being encultured and some of these things just being almost accepted. I mean, everyone's now quite aware of Berejiklian's a statement where she said that, speaking of pork barrelling, it's not an illegal practice. It does happen from time to time in every government. And there's both a sort of a banal truth and a shocking revelation sort of simultaneously contained in it. <laughs> that, that is a great summary of that, yeah. I absolutely agree. It's like for, from inside you're going, but hang on a second, this is just, this is literally my job is to do this. What's everyone outraged yeah. by? And there's a bit of a sense of that in, in the Big Deal documentary as well. It's like, hang on, my, my job's to get all this yeah. money, and you know? Yeah, that's that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. like like I, lo- I I do love watch, watching Dastiari just lay it out. I could have I could have played an hour of that interview to be honest. Just kind of, it's so shocking. <laughs> kind of just, and and he's he's quite a compelling figure. He's uh, he's he's very frank and um, and yeah. uh, he speaks with enormous authority. Someone else who speaks with a lot of authority is Michael Yabsley, a former New South Wales Liberal Minister and former Federal Party Treasurer, a Federal Liberal Party Treasurer who uh, these days describes himself as a poacher-turned-gamekeeper, and, and he's mm. he's calling for um, donations reform, back on donations. He's calling for donations reform also. He cited in a piece that he wrote for, I think it was the Herald last week, uh, a conversation he had with Labor Senator Stephen Loosley, former Labor Senator, who had told him, in politics, money doesn't talk, it screams. Um, so, you know, very much uh, suggesting... As as your documentary does, that this money is such an important feature here in this um, yeah. in this whole process. Yabsley's solution is, I think, something you were touching on a minute ago, is to stop anyone donating who isn't an individual. Yes, he's he's he's, he's interestingly enough, he seems to be anti kind of public funding as well. Uh, which I, look, I think that, is, that public yes. funding does help in some way balancing things up. So I, that I, was I, the initial purpose of it, wasn't it? To yeah. sort of try and clean up this, to sort of establish <laughs> a base level of funding, so you could run a campaign and people could uh, parties could receive donations over and above that, according to relatively tight rules. You know, yeah. transparency declarations over a certain amount, thirteen thousand, whatever it is now, uh, had to be declared on the donations register and the like. And between those two things, hopefully it it would all be tickety-boo. Yes, exactly. And the funny thing about it, though, is that we brought in the public funding, but we left entirely open the other forms of funding, the kind of other forms of donation. It's kind of funny. It's like like going, look, I'm going to fix your car to make it more 
better for the climate. I'm putting in this battery-operated engine, but I'm going to leave the V8 in there as well, okay? Yeah, <laughs> fully like, hooked up. Yeah, fully hooked up <laughs> as well, okay? <laughs> and you go, hang on a second, uh, just um, were we trying to solve that? No, 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 I've solved that problem the other way. So uh, it, it is strange. It's like, I feel like we've done half the job at the moment. And 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 is this... Partly because this is a, a relatively arcane area that uh, people tend not to think about it much outside of elections. You know, we have the, these stories that sort of squall up like we have a few at the moment as we've been discussing, but, but broadly mm. speaking, people – I mean, I sometimes worry that w- we have such a sort of arresting level of cynicism in this country that that the sort of Berejiklian statement about, oh, well, everyone does it is, is, is kind of right in the sense that we, we're not – that appalled when we hear about these things because we sort of assumed it was we already assumed it was happening yeah it's really interesting you bring up the cynicism point i think it was one of the kind of real mic drop moments in the movie in terms of or just 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 kind of mind-changing moments so got a young community organizer was talking about it and kind of saying look if you get all cynical about this and you're like, oh, politics is just all rubbish and dirty and you just go, I'm not, I'm not going to pay any more attention to it, then the very people that have made you cynical have won because they want to get you out of it. You know, if you take that cynicism mm. and you respond by becoming engaged and going, I want to change that, I want to change the thing that made me cynical, that's democracy, that's the proper way it should work. And I think there is a real risk of that, of the kind of cynicism of politics making people just kind of log out and therefore people get away with more abuse of the system because you go, well, that's just how it works. That's how it works. Um, so that that not having that as your natural response to this I think is a really important part of it. Yeah, it is really interesting. And Helen Haynes, who's in the film, uh, talks about uh, the sort of almost the compact that they have with volunteers to eschew uh, abuse and negativity towards other candidates and to maintain a positive kind of disposition. So you sign up for the, you know, to be a volunteer with her campaign. You, you have to sign up to a set of values. And it sounded, we've had Helen Haynes on, on the podcast, obviously. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's a refreshing take on politics. Some will call it naive, <laughs> but, but I think there's quite an appetite for that kind of, um, you know, positive, uh, optimistic approach to it. Absolutely, I think it really is. It's going to be fascinating in the next election to see because that Voices for Indi movement that kind of came out of the community in a very natural, organic way was, you know, and initially, interestingly, didn't come out. It didn't start as a with the intention of running a candidate. It started with the intention of kind of finding out what people cared about and feeding that back to the local member, and it was the kind of short shrift they got from at the time Sophie Mirabella. That ended led them kind of going. Well, hang on a second. If we've we've just found all this information, our local members not interested. How do we push it further? And that's led, of course, to um, to having an independent member and running and beating Sophie Mirabella. So that's that's fascinating because what's what I find interesting is that we're now seeing a lot of new voices of and voices for movements starting up in different electorates this time. Mm. And a lot of them are starting much more with the kind of, we're going to get rid of that local member. You know, that's, that's the first step that they're kind of starting. And I, and I'd be interested to see whether they, Managed to maintain some of those core values of Voices for Indi, the values such as, you know, you don't talk badly about the other party or the other politicians, you know, we're going to try and keep this clean. We're going to try and be a kind of step above. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I, th- I think we're going to probably see very different approaches in different electorates, which is kind of confusing for people. It's like, hang on, I thought this was that approach, but it's, it'll be different in different places. 
Yeah, well, that's right, and it's particularly hard to maintain that balance if 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 the understanding of a lot of people there is to knock off a, a you know an odious long-standing local member and get someone who actually listens to the community. And although that was what Kathy McGowan originally achieved, as you say, it was yeah, she not did, she did specifically but- set out in that way, at least not initially. And and uh, it will be interesting to see whether people can maintain that sort of dualism of trying to maintain be positive whilst at the same time saying. We need change, and that change yeah. involves getting rid of someone you've been, you know, you've you've been voting for for a long time. Yeah, and I guess it was interesting because Ali Stegall is another example of the kind of the independent that came very much from the the idea of getting rid of Tony Abbott. Interestingly, in that case, she what didn't come through the voices of or voices for movement, even though there was one in the Warringah electorate. Uh, that was a separate organisation. It was separate. To I think the, the we can see Tony came. Abbott as a very special case, though, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, there's no one like Tony Abbott. Really. There, he, he is special, indeed. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, his nemesis, of course, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, became Prime Minister after Abbott. Uh, Turnbull replaced Abbott. And we know that in the 2016 campaign, Turnbull tipped in. Now, we only knew this after the event, but Turnbull tipped in $1.75 million of his own money, he and, he and Lucy. Uh, now, we've had Malcolm on, on, on this podcast as well, and, and I've got to say someone I regard uh, with, um, a, a, as having you know, untrammeled integrity. Uh, he revealed about, I think it was about seven months later, initially on 7.30, uh, that, uh, that he had made this donation. Now, if you remember the, 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 the Election campaign in 2016 was on July 2, right? So it tips over into the next financial mm. year, the start of a, a new financial year. Yes. Malcolm Turnbull's donation to the Liberal Party in service of uh, campaigning for his own government. So it wasn't someone else's money, and I think it's an important point to make. But nonetheless, it was a yeah. very substantial sum of money, perhaps the largest single donation anyone's made, any individual's made in Australian politics. Um, and... He he said at the time when he was speaking in February on 7.30, uh, he said, in the course of this current financial year, which is why it hasn't been disclosed on the Australian Electoral Commission website, I contributed $1.75 million. That was the contribution I made. I mean, I was quite cynical about it at the time because I thought had that been known about during the election campaign, it would have been quite quite a significant story in its own right. Uh, and yet it t- appeared to have been timed to... Um, mm. To, to not require any declaration. And in fact, it wasn't officially declared by the Australian Electoral Commission for a whole other 12 months after he announced it. So that's 18 months after the election. Yeah. Right here we have, I think, um, you know, pl- plaudits to, to Turnbull for eventually uh, coming clean about that. Um, but we also have evidence of how the system is gamed by, by political parties you know, much like tax law and a range of other things, you know, sort of constantly gamed, and also just how slow the transparency even that we have is. And transparency is important in a, in a sort of a temporal sense as well as uh, in what you know. It's when you know it. It's ridiculous. I mean, it is the transparency is totally ridiculous. I mean, as you say, 12 to 18 months later, it's when you find out at the federal level, which is often too late. You know, as a journalist, you're like, well, uh, I would have written that up for that story, but that story's kind of gone now. Um I mean, Queensland's interesting because it has a seven-day disclosure limit, so you actually have to disclose within seven days. 
If Queensland can do it, if the state of Sajobioki Peterson can do it, we can do it. Perhaps that's why. That's perhaps that's why there is a, an appetite for doing it. Well, there yeah. is a part. It, it did come out of scandals in Queensland post Sajobioki. But yeah, transparency is well, one of the, probably the most interesting parts of doing this documentary that I found. As somebody who went into it with you know a bit of you know a, a kind of skerrick of knowledge, is that there's a lot of talk about transparency and that that's all it's about. And you kind of realise when you look at Queensland that transparency is really important, but it's not the only thing. You still have in Queensland a system whereby there are very strong parties that dominate and affect the debate. You know, you have hundreds of thousands of dollars coming from the gas lobby. Now, the fact that that is declared and upfront, the fact that you can show the meetings between the members and the ministers and the the lobby groups and the <clears throat> Santos people, for instance, type, you know, just or, or any group like that, is really good, but it hasn't necessarily stopped the problem. That's where I think you really do need some kind of cap system in here or, or to go to the model, if we can get it through the High Court, where it is only individuals that actually donate. But I still think a cap is an important part of it so that one person's voice can't be, you know, 80 million times louder than everyone else's, and that's, I think, part of the problem. I think with, with the Turnbull example, it's interesting because to me it it speaks to a different thing. I don't think that it's not like you're mystified by who's influencing because you know that Turnbull was pro-Turnbull. In many ways, some could say that Turnbull is the most pro-Turnbull person there is. Fascinatingly, talking to Turnbull as well for this documentary, what was clear is that because he was so rich, he was probably far less influenced by the donation system than normal members were, but than normal politicians. You know, he he's not he's not like he's going to be startled by the glitzy big boat or the you know the wealth of one of the donors. It's not like that's going to impress. It's not like he feels like you know, as he says in the documentary. Well, push came to shove. In the end, I could write a check myself. Now, that's great to a point. You go, okay, that's really good. He was uninfluenced by it. But that shows you don't want to have a political system whereby the only person you can really speak independently is somebody who's extremely rich. That's a fault in the system. You need to have a system whereby politicians feel like they have great independence and or, or that they're reflecting the will of their electorate, but not just because they could, they can't just do that because they're rich enough already. So I think that that, that, that terminal example is – it. The outrage for me is not that he donated. It's what it shows about the way the system works. Yeah, I think they're, they're all very good points because that, that, that concern about making sure we don't have a, a, a parliament made up of you know, only people who are wealthy enough to sort of you know, largely mm. fund their own entry into parliament, I think that would be, um, that would be a very deleterious uh, outcome. Yes. Um, the other thing, though, the transparency thing is interesting too, in, even in this context, because I wonder... Uh, and again, I'm not suggesting any impropriety. I think you, you outlined uh, his donation very well. You know, it was it was completely uh, above board, and it was uh, entirely uh, focused, as he plainly said, on you know uh, funding his own re-election. Um, the, the question is, though, would he have made that donation uh, if there was real time transparency? Would it have been that significant? <laughs> The yeah. transparency does have a um, it does have its limits, but it but but in its defence, it also has a a chilling effect. I would think 
on the way uh, money flows into politics. Oh, don't don't get me wrong. Transparency is the first and easiest step, and has to be done. Like there is no excuse for not having real time donations disclosure. Like it's ridiculous in our kind of up to date world of Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff that we can't know within at, like. To be honest, a week is a long time. But you if can we know where a plane a is week, anywhere around the world by looking on a at website. At any point, yeah, exactly. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. So the infrastructure can be put in place. I'm not saying we shouldn't have that transparency. I'm just saying that it's not enough. You would pair it with caps on on uh, on the amount, but also on the amount that can be spent. Yes, yes. I think you need to have you need to end the arms race as well. So um, yeah, yeah I, I'm just saying that it's not in and of itself. Transparency is not enough to solve this problem. Yeah, no, it's a very good point, Craig Rickhustle. It's been terrific having you on uh, the Real Democracy Sausage, or the uh, <laughs> or, or one of them, or whatever we however we describe it. Uh, something I've wanted to do for. Uh, long time and this was the perfect opportunity because it's an absolutely crucial uh, issue that uh, you raise here in this documentary it's actually on uh, airing on abc tv over the next couple of weeks uh, i'd uh, really recommend it to people to go and have a look at that yes you can see it on iview if you miss it on the uh, the old box or if you don't have a television anymore uh, so it's <laughs> yes, on iview indeed. yeah <laughs> well thanks Good so much you, mark thank you for having me on the uh, the original and best democracy sausage and uh yeah yeah well, we didn't get to talk about your instance when you got done actually just very quickly because yes. you got caught up in this with um joe hockey of course that's true. There was the, the of course, the, the famous democracy for sale headline that appeared uh, on uh, the front pages of the Herald and the Age, uh, and me and another journo were, uh, yeah, uh, faced a fairly significant federal court case, Hockey v. Fairfax, as it was at the time. Yep. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was... Um, that and was what a, was the donations rate? What were the donations that he was taking at the time? It was... Well, it was... The the, the, uh, the story was about money that was flowing into the North Sydney Forum, which a lot of these MPs have these forums where they uh, where people can particularly corporates can can uh, buy memberships uh, and wealthy individuals and 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 I guess any individual can theoretically become a member of these they're, they're not exactly a super PAC because they're quite affiliated and 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 quite mm-hmm. open but the point we were making in the piece was that if you were wealthy you could you know you could attend these lunches that sometimes had very very significant uh, uh, entry prices and this would give right. you access to in the case of Joe Hockey at the time, the treasurer. Now, the jurisprudence on this is really quite interesting, but suffice it to say, the article and the headline was not upheld as defamatory by the federal court. A couple of uh, smaller things, two tweets and one of those banners outside the newsagent, you know, the ones in the little wire Mm -hmm. cages, that was held by the federal court to have possibly impugned his character, uh, defamed him because it didn't have the qualifying information that was in the articles that me and the and the other journo had uh, had on the front page there. But yes, a really significant case. It was fascinating, and you know what's interesting about that is that that kind of stuff's very much still going on. And I must admit. There's a great example of it, and unfortunately, due to COVID restrictions, we weren't able to get to the place to show it. But there's some there's some members in Parliament at the moment who their power really does come from their ability to run those kind of local forums quite effectively and get lots of money. So yeah. it hasn't changed, Mark. Yeah, there's a fair bit going on under the surface of politics. That's true, and that's why we yes. need good journalism. And uh, you've been Indeed. part of that, and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Craig. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. See you again next week.